Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is good to see you this morning. Before we jump into our passage for today, I want to invite you to put on your calendars two Sundays from today. Two Sundays from today, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum will be here. Some people already know Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum because you've read his books um, or you've listened to him or you've taken an online class from him. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, is, he's a scholar. Uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful teacher, and I have learned a lot from him. And uh, there are some small groups in our church who have uh, gone through books of his to learn more about the footsteps of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he is going to be here two Sundays from today. So not next Sunday. Skip next Sunday. Forget. No, no, no. Still come next Sunday. Um, but it, it's the following Sunday, February 25th, he'll uh, be here he leads a ministry called Aerial Ministries, and that is one of the ministries that we uh, support here at Grace. So when you give to Grace Community Church, his ministry, Aerial Ministries, is one of those that you are participating in uh, supporting. And so you might as well come and get to know the people that we are uh, supporting here at Grace. But with that, let's turn back our attention back to our purpose for today, and that is to study God's Word. So would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of James. James chapter 5, James chapter 5. This series is all about understanding God, understanding God in context. Context is important because it moves us from what we think someone said to what they actually said. Context is important in literature because as soon as we understand the context, we get an idea of what they really said, and it moves us away from what we assumed they said or what we wished they said. There was an Irish author, his name was Stuart Stanford, and Stuart Stanford said, when you separate the text from the context, all that remains is a con, a lie, a con job. When you separate the text from the context... All that remains is a con. It's just a lie. It's a misunderstanding. It's a lie. And so when God spoke, he meant to say something. What I mean by that, any, any particular topic, any particular passage, when God spoke, he, he had an intended message, a singular intended message, not one of 17 to pick from. He meant to say something. He, it's not, well, I, it's what I think he says, and then what you think he says, and then what they think they said, and then what that YouTube guy thinks he says. And, and any of those 17 different options are all, put, are all right. You can just pick whatever one. No. When God spoke in his word, he meant to say something. He had a specific message. And this is one of the skills that a Christian needs to develop over time is learning how to find what God's message was, what he really meant. It could have been one of those 17 options that are out there, and we just have to pick the right one, or it could be that we haven't even found the right option yet, and there's an 18th option that is what God really said. And so that's why context is so important, because it moves us away from what we think God said, what we wish God said, what we hope God said. It moves us away from our assumptions about God, and it moves us to what he really said. And so that's the purpose of this series, to understand God, to give ourselves a little practice. And so every once in a while, this happens to be our fifth every once in a while, I give some examples so that we can practice doing this. And I guess the whole point is, is that you read way more than just four passages in Scripture in a year, I hope. You read way more than that. So I'm hoping what this does is give you a little practice so that when you run across one of these passages that are easily taken out of context, 
or when one of your Christian friends or you're reading a book or you hear something on the radio, that you have the ability, you have the tools to be able to find uh, the answers that you're looking for in the contextual, accurately contextual scriptures of, of God's Word. Now, the, the topic for today is a weird one. We're all involved. All of us are involved, but it's, I don't even know how to introduce it. And so let's just read the verses that are taken out of context, and we'll let James introduce it today. James chapter 5, verse 14. It says this, Is anyone among you sick? Well, let's stop right there. Yes, among us there are many people who are sick. You probably know someone who is sick. And so, there we go. That's the context or the topic for the day. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So the question for today is, should the elders anoint me with oil? And maybe you've run across this passage before, and you might have wondered about this too. What kind of sickness is this? An ingrown toenail? A sore throat? Does it have to be on the other extreme? It has to be on the deathbed? Is it somewhere in between a sore throat and deathbed? Is it a diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis? Is it only physical illness? Can it be when I get sick of my neighbors? Is that kind of sickness? Sick of my baseball team losing in the playoffs? Is that kind of sickness? What is this referring to? I can tell you this from personal experience. There isn't much more, many more things that are intimidating for a pastor than to get a phone call that says something like, Hi, Pastor Nathan. One of my family members is sick. Can you please arrange for an anointing service? It brings up a whole lot of questions. Uh... What kind of sickness is it? How long have they been sick? How did they get sick? Is this, is this kind of healing thing even for us today, or is this only for uh, another group of people in the first century? H- how would you do it? When would you do it? What kind of oil would you use? There's a lot of questions that come up when you have this passage here in James 5. And a lot of people have accidentally misunderstood this passage. And when you accidentally, unintentionally misunderstand God here, it leads to a lot of things. There are some people who believe that this passage that we read here is the the anointing of someone before they die, that this is preparing someone for death. You've heard of the doctrine of the last rites, where uh, someone comes and anoints a person with oil, uh, absolving them of their sins and preparing them for the afterlife. And what's interesting about the last rites, the Catholic last rites, is it's so close. It is so close to being what James meant. It's, It's just the opposite side of the coin. It is so close and yet so far away. Others, though, have misunderstood this passage, and in their worship services on Sunday morning, at the end of the worship service on Sunday morning, or at the end of their Bible study on Wednesday night, they call everybody who is sick, who has sicknesses, who has hurt knees, who whatever problems they have, they call them forward to get anointed and to hopefully be healed. Now, whatever James 5 means, it doesn't mean that. 
There are, there's a large group of Christians uh, within the Christian realm that believe the entire book of James, including James 5, is not even for today. That, that James 5 was only for Jewish converts back in the first century, and James in the entire, entire book of James, including James 5, is not for us at all today. That Christians today can, in whole, dismiss, not even read it, because it's not for today. It was only for uh, the first century Jews and those Jewish converts back then. However, they kind of forget the fact that it echoes a lot of things that Jesus said in the Gospels, and a lot of things the other apostles say in the rest of the writings of Scripture are echoed in those other places as well from James. And so <laughs> you can't dismiss James. And so some people turn this into last rites. Some people turn this into something that happens in a worship service. Some people dismiss this altogether and say that this wasn't even for today. And a lot of well-meaning Christians who love the Lord, they just they, in their Christian life, they'll read through the Bible, and a few times in their Christian life, they'll read through James 5, and they remember it. And when someone in their family gets sick, they remember James 5, and they claim James 5, and they, they call their church, and they ask their pastor to come over and anoint with oil for anything from a sore throat all the way to uh, cancer that will kill their family member in the next two hours. And so, what does this mean? <laughs> what is this about? Well, we have to put all this back in context so we can understand what's happening. So, let's go back to verse 14, and let's... Uh, start here, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter today. Verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Now, that word sick, that Greek word sick, is referring to a physical ailment, a physical sickness. And it's not just any ailment. It is a severe ailment. It is a severe sickness. It's something that is serious. This Greek word sick is used in other places in the New Testament, and the other places that this is used, it is often used for someone who is deadly sick, on their deathbed sick. That royal official son in John chapter 4 that is about to die, it, that's this word, that's this Greek word. Then there was Lazarus in John, uh, John 11, that's this word. He was sick, and Lazarus did die. So that's this word. In Acts chapter 9, there was this woman her name was Dorcas. Don't, don't even think about naming your daughter that, okay? Yes, it's a biblical name. Yes, she won't like that for the rest of her life. But there's a woman in Acts chapter 9, her name was Dorcas, and she was sick, this Greek word, and then she died. So that gives you an idea of what this word means. This is a severe illness, okay? And it's a physical one. This is not a metaphorical illness. This is not a spiritual uh, illness. This is a physical illness that is severe in nature. So we're not talking hangnails. We aren't talking sore throats. We're, this is serious, deathbed kind of stuff. And so that's where the Roman Catholic Church, they understand the severity of this word. And so it is out of this verse that they come to the idea of last rites. But the only thing is that they just got it backwards. When the Roman Catholic priest goes and prays for someone and gives them their last rites, he is preparing them to die. But that's not the intention. We, we read the two verses. The, the goal is, the, in, from James, his purpose is, is that they would be on their deathbed, but then they would be healed. They would be restored. 
It's just, it's just the opposite of last rites. That someone comes and is a praise for them, and, and now they are pulled back from the brink of the, of the death um, that they're right looking at in the, in the face. And so it's understandable, though, where the confusion would come because of the seriousness, seriousness of this word sick. And so if you know of anybody in a situation like this, you or someone else, then what do you do? Well, it says, then he must call for the elders of the church. He calls for the elders of the church. I want you to note that it's the person who is sick that does the calling. It's not the other way around where at church they call you forward. The churches that call people forward to have them healed in their worship services can't claim James chapter 5 because the sick person in James chapter 5 calls the elders, tell them, tells them what's going on, and those elders go to wherever they are. The elders don't call them forward. They call the elders. And when those elders do go, when they get the phone call, to the person who is severely sick on their deathbed sick, they're to do a few things. Verse 14, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. Now, it's really interesting that the focus here is the prayer of the elders and the faithfulness of the elders. It's not the prayer of the person who is sick. It is the faithful prayer of the elders who go to visit that person who is sick. That's a common lie that is told by these charismatic faith healers that say that they can heal. When you don't get healed, the message is, is, well, then you just didn't have enough faith. The faith is on you. You didn't have the faith. But that's not the way that James says it. It's not about the person who is sick and their prayers. And their faith, it's the faithful prayers of the people who show up to care for that person. And so if that faith healer is unable to heal somebody, it's not that person, that's not that person's faith. It's their own faith that they should be looking at. So when those elders show up, they, they pray over that person. But they also do another thing, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's weird. I got to admit, that's a weird thing. And a lot of questions come out of this. So what is this oil thing? Is this, is this oil medicinal? And it's the oil that does the healing? Is this oil symbolic of something else and it's not the oil that does the healing? What is this oil? Now, of course, you know that oil has some medicinal properties. They put oil in all of the hair care products, and look at you, you're all looking very beautiful today. They put oil in the skin care products, and obviously all of you are using them to the max because you look so wonderful today. And so there are some medicinal properties. Some people say that oil can help their joints feel better. Some people say that oil can help reduce the effects of the flu. But oil, the medicinal aspects of oil kind of run out. You know what I mean? That, that, the, the, the medicinal properties of oil run out of things that it can help with, right? Like, all medicines are like that. Think of any medicine that exists, and at some point in time, it runs out of things that it can help with. 
and oils the exact same way. At some point in time, you, they aren't using oil to cure cancer. They aren't, you, you, you don't use oil to help repair a heart attack. You can't use oil to uh, fix a brain aneurysm. So oil runs out on things that it can work on. However, James 5 is a complete, unlimited promise. And so it can't be the oil, because at some point in time, the oil is going to run out of its medicinal properties, whatever they are. And so it's not, it's not the oil. It, the oil doesn't have medicinal properties. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out that it's not the oil that gets credit for this healing at all. We're going to find out that it's God is the one who gets the credit for this. And so this oil is not medicinal in the healing. And so it's symbolic. You can use any oil you want to use. Fish oil, break open those little pills that they tell you to take, just break that thing open. Fish oil, you could use that. Canola oil, your cabinets at home, you could use that. There are some guys in our church who are getting ready for the softball season. They're getting all their gloves all lit up with the linseed oil. Hey, man, just go to your trunk, grab some linseed oil. You could use linseed oil. Quaker State, full synthetic, you could use that too. Some motor oil, use that. Because God is the one who's going to get the credit. It's not going to be the oil that has medicinal properties. It's going to be God is the one who's going to get the credit for this. Now, Verse 15 is the results. What happens when this goes on? When someone who is sick to the point of death, when they call the elders on the phone and say, hey, I'm sick, and the elders come and faithfully pray and anoint them with oil, here's what happens. Verse 15 it says, the prayer offered in faith now, we've already talked about that, but notice it's the prayer of the elders who are there. The responsibility of faith is on the elders. It isn't on the person who is sick in their bed. But anyway, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. That word restore means to deliver. It means to rescue. So from a human perspective, there's someone who is on their deathbed severely ill. And they call the elders, the elders go to them, they faithfully pray for this person, they anoint them with oil, and they're going to be restored, meaning they're on the brink of death and they will be healed. They will be brought back from the edge of death and they will be healed. And notice who's the one that does the healing. Keep reading in verse 15. And the Lord will raise him up. It's God is the one who does the healing. It's not the oil. It's not the elders, it's not the prayer, it's not some faith healer that claims they have apostolic abilities. It is God. He is the one who raises this person up. God is the one who heals. The faithfulness of the elders, they come and faithfully pray, but God is the one who heals. And within the specific direct context of James 5, this is a complete promise. Complete. Totally. Notice it doesn't say they may be healed, or this person might be healed, or if the stars align, then they'll be healed, or if God wills it, then they'll be healed. This is a complete, full promise. 
when you follow the prescription of James chapter 5, that person will be healed. But you kind of have to stop right there for a minute. Because there are faithful, wonderful Christians who have followed this exact prescription. And maybe you know some of them. They have followed this exact prescription, and yet they weren't healed. And so then a lot of questions come rushing to your mind, ones that you would rather not ask, like, did God not keep his promise? Did they use the wrong oil? Was God unable to heal that person? And maybe even a question that is even worse than that, was he unwilling to heal that person? And the answer to all those questions, or I guess the reason all of those questions come, is because we haven't read the rest of the verse. <laughs> That's the whole point in this series. You just have to read. You don't, this one, you don't even have to read the entire book. You don't have to read the rest of the Bible. You just need to read the rest of the verse before you start asking questions like that. So now let's read the rest of the verse, the last phrase in this verse. Verse 15, And a prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Aha! That is a key part to the context of this entire passage. And the main idea here is, because you've committed sins that have caused God to give you this infirmity, this deadly infirmity, because now you've confessed those sins, now I can remove, I can restore your health. That's the idea. Because you've committed sins, so, so many sins that caused God to give you this infirmity in the first place. Now that you've repented, now that you've confessed those, now that, there, that sin is no more, now I can restore your health. That's the idea. Now that probably brings up more questions than you had before. But here are a couple things that we know. We know that there are times when God will reach into the life of a Christian. Now, we're talking about a Christian here. We're talking about someone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, come to, come to earth, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for sins. Now, not everybody in the world is a Christian. It's only people who put their faith, their belief upon Jesus and his death. That when Jesus took the, the punishment on the cross, he was taking not his own punishment. He had none. He was sinless. He was taking on my sin and your sin. And the Bible says that any person who has their, puts their belief, their faith in this Jesus, the judgment that rained out upon God is really taking on my sin. So when we have our faith, his death applies in my life. And, and my sin has now been dealt with by God the Father. So we're talking about a Christian a person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there are times when God will reach into a Christian's life who is in sin. What I mean by in sin, I mean habitual sin. They know it's wrong. They've been doing it wrong for a long time. Back at the beginning, they even feel guilty about it. Maybe they do every once in a while still, but over time, their heart has just kind of gotten so uh, callous, crusty, because they're just used to doing it for so long. And there are times where God will reach into this Christian's life who, who, have, who have not confessed their sin, who have not repented, turned the other way, and come, come back to living a righteous life for Christ. God will reach into this person's life, 
and he will give them an illness, a physical, a physical infirmity that will be a physical an illustration of how bad their spiritual life is. This illness is a visual example that you can that you can see in a mirror, that you can test with a thermometer, <laughs> that you can get on a scan. And it will be a physical illustration of how bad their spiritual condition really is because they are wallowing in their sin. They're going down the toilet bowl of their own sin. And God will reach into their life. And as a gift of love, as a gift of grace, God gives them this infirmity to to show them how bad their, uh, their sinfulness really is. And this is love. God wants to bring them back. And so when the elders go and pray for this person, they aren't praying for the person to die, praying for them to be in eternity. When the elders go and pray for them, the hope is that they would be healed. They are praying that God would restore them after they have confessed that sin that is in their life. And your mind is probably rushing a lot with a lot of questions. Now, from everything that we can gather from James 5, which does not give me all the answers to the questions that you have, this is not a particular sin, because you're probably wondering, okay, what sin is that? (laughs) What sin is the sin that I do that gives me the the death plague? I don't want want to do that sin. That's not really the idea here. The idea seems to be that God, for whatever reason, will reach into a certain person's life just because they are wallowing in their sin and probably hurting their own testimony, even maybe hurting other people around them. And he will reach in their life and will give them this. So it doesn't doesn't seem as if it's a specific sin. In addition to that, it's not just one sin. It's not just driving down the road and you just kind of trip and fall into, into some sort of sin. And then you confess your sin to God and you confess it and that sort of thing. It's not that kind of thing. It's a sin that is habitual. A sin that the person knows is wrong. They've been doing it for a long, long time. Now, how does God pick this person as opposed to another person uh, wallowing in their sin as well? I have no idea. I have no idea how God decides. We just know here from James 5 that he does decide. And you might be thinking a couple things right now. You might be thinking, you're crazy. I have never heard this before. Both of those things are probably true. Probably I am crazy, and it's possible that you've never heard this understanding of James 5 before, but this is what's going on. This is what's happening here. There are other examples in Scripture where this occurs, one being King David in Psalm 32, but I think it's interesting. This passage is a really interesting one because this is the only divine healing passage where it prescribes the process of divine healing. This is the only one. All of the other passages in the, in the New Testament are all describing what happened. We talked about that last week, the difference between description and prescription. The Bible describes a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we are to do all of those things, like Rahab's lie from last week. And this is the only place in the New Testament that prescribes the process for divine healing. All the other ones, the ones in Acts, the ones in Corinthians, that's all describing what happened. 
But now this is prescribing divine healing. I think the reason for that is because this is so rare, at least that we know of. This is so rare. It doesn't happen all of the time. But this is the promise in James 5. Under these conditions, God will heal. So we're talking about a Christian, a Christian who is a part of a local church. After all, he has elders that he could call. So it's a Christian who is a part of a local church, and now they are deadly ill. They, they are on their deathbed. A severe, this is not for any sickness. This isn't for a hangnail, a severe sickness. And fourthly, they know that they are being disciplined by God. A Christian who normally regularly attends church, has elders to call, they're severely ill, and they know without a doubt that they are being disciplined by God. This isn't the Christian saying, okay, back when I was six years old, I cussed that one time. I think he's getting me for that. It's not that. God doesn't, as a father, he, he doesn't discipline you and you not know what's going on. Just like any human father. He's, that father's going to make sure you know you're being disciplined for it just so that you don't do it again. And so this is a Christian who is a part of a church who then is deadly ill, and they know exactly what God is disciplining them for. Know exactly what it is. It's not just some minor thing. It is a severe thing that is going on in this person's life. And when that person then calls the elders, they come to the home of that person who is ill. The elders don't call them forward in church. (laughs) They go to the person who is ill. That person confesses that sin to them, tells them, we're kind of representing God at this point in time, tells them what is going on. And the elders faithfully pray, and they anoint with oil, and the promise here is that God will restore them, that God will remove this physical illustration because now the issue's been dealt with. Now the issue is taken care of. God cares way more about our spiritual health than he does about our physical health. And I said that in January when we're talking about our Christian growth in January. I said God cares more about our spiritual health than he does about our physical health. And we all agreed. Yes, yes, he really does. But this is where it really comes down to coming down. That God would sometimes, in a Christian's life, he would rather give them some death plague to to rescue them spiritually than for them to just continue to go down the toilet bowl of their own habitual sin. He cares more about our spiritual health than he does about our physical health. Now, what about this Christian who is on their deathbed? What if they do not call the elders? What if they don't know about James 5? Or what if they are so rebellious they don't even care they're going to do it until literally they die? What about that person? Well, I can tell you this. This is not like an empty threat from God. This isn't like, you know, God saying, okay, I'm going to give you the death plague, but <laughs> just joking, I'm not really going to do it to you. You know, it's like the parents who say, all right, I'm going to count to three, and, uh, and when I get to three, then uh, the world's going to fall upon you. One, two, two and a half two and three quarters, uh, three, uh, four. Uh, Let me try that again, Johnny. This is not that. But if this person does not follow the James 5 process, that Christian will die from the physical infirmity that they have. Now, here's the good news, though. 
when they die, they go to heaven because they're a Christian, because they put their faith and trust in Christ. Remember, when a person puts their faith in Christ, their sins are dealt with. For Christ also died for sins once for all. He died once. He doesn't have to die again. The just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. So when a Christian sins in their life, there, there might be consequences, physical consequences or practical consequences like a speeding ticket or going to jail or something like that. But the eternal consequences have already been dealt with. That's why the Bible can promise eternal life. See, if this Christian who was wallowing in their sin, going down the toilet bowl of their sin, then God gave them this, God gave them this death plague to get them to come back, but they don't come back, they don't confess, they don't repent, they don't go the other way. When this person dies, they don't have to go pay for their sin in hell now because their sin has already been dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's a wonderful thing. And there are times when God does say to a person, it's better that you just come to heaven right now than to do the things you're doing there right now. And so this is what's going on in James chapter 5. Now, you might ask, what if the person doesn't get healed? What if it's Christian who is a part of a church? They call the elders they, because they are severely on their deathbed sick. They call the elders. The elders come out. Uh, that person confesses some sin that's on their mind. The elders faithfully pray to anoint, and that person still dies. What about that? Was God unable to keep his promise? Was he unwilling to provide for them, to restore them? No. That is a complete promise here. If that person still dies, it just means that wasn't why they were on their deathbed. The Bible tells us that God holds the, the day of a person's birth and a day of a person's death in his hands. And so it just means that that person was going to die anyway. And so he confessed some sins. <laughs> you know, he just got it off his chest. That was on his mind, apparently. And that's a good thing. Confess his sins. That's an okay thing. But obviously that wasn't the thing that caused him to be on his deathbed in the first place. Now, with all this, you might be starting to think, okay, how can I not be in this spot? How, how can I prevent myself from getting into the situation that this guy is in on his deathbed because of the reoccurrence of sin, habitual sin in his life? How can I avoid that? Well, that's what the rest of James is about. The rest of the book is about that topic. Look at verse 16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So now, James, the author, turns his attention from the prescribing process for this person who has the death plague because of their sin, and he moves from this person, and now he's talking to the rest of us. He's talking to everybody else in the church that this person attends. And so now he says, okay, here is how the rest of you avoid the situation that this person is in. And so he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. This is the preventative side of the verses 14 and 15. This is how to prevent it from ever getting that bad. He moves from the guy in the bed to the other people who are not on their deathbed because of an illness that God gave them because of them wallowing in their sin. 
And so it says to confess your sins to one another. Agree that it's sin. Run from the sin. Don't do it anymore. If there's restitution or reconciliation that needs to happen between other Christians in the church, do that right now. You don't ever want it to get this bad. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Sin has an awful effect on a person, particularly a Christian, because it runs so opposite of why Christ died for our sins. You know that Jesus died so that we would be sinless. Now, we won't ever completely attain that, but Paul says, I'm working, for, I'm working hard to get there. I don't want to sin because sin is brutal. Sin hurts people. And so it says, pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, this isn't a hill that I'm going to die on or anything, but I don't think that word healed is referring to physical healing. I think that word healed is referring to a spiritual healing or maybe even sometimes an emotional healing healing. Think of this. We have this person that is part of this church that are on their deathbed because of sin, and now he turns to the rest of the congregation and says, hey, to avoid that, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you would be healed. Think of this. If there is sin between two people in our church, and there's this kind of, there's this, this rift between them, now there's a, now there's a problem. Our body now has a sore Sore somewhere a part of the body. And that sore, if it's just left open, and if it's not dealt with, that sore can get infected. And that sore can turn to gangrene. It can turn to sepsis, and it can kill the entire body, a little sore. And so even when two Christians reconcile together, even within a church, just because there was some sort of sin between them, when... They reconcile together. That is healing. When a person stops sinning, that is, that is healthy when that person does that. And particularly, the rest of the church also gets the benefit that, that now there's no longer any open wound in that area where the gangrene and the sepsis and the infection can begin to build. And so James is just saying here, okay, you all need to deal with your sins before it gets bad like that. You need to deal with your sin before it, 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 God has to get harsh with you. Like he got harsh with this person. Deal with your sins early, or else God may have to deal with them more severely. Now, in this, where it talks about pray for one another so that you'd be healed, confess your sins to one another, this isn't prescribing that you would go to confession or that you would call a pastor and say, hey, I want to come to your office and tell you all of the sins that uh, I've committed. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. This isn't saying that you, we, we need to publicly declare all of our deepest, darkest sins. I mean, that would be fun. Who wants to stand up first and do that? Who wants to stand up first in the worship service and declare all their deepest, darkest sins right now? That'd be fun. Well, until it got to me, but then it wouldn't be as fun. So this is not prescribing that, what this is saying is, is if you have a problem with someone else in the church, then you need to go to them. You need to apologize. You need to fix that issue that is between the two of you because it hurts. And if there is any sort of sin within that situation, 
it needs to stop because it's going to hurt things within that church. And so Jesus in Matthew 18, he already had given the process for how that was to be. Jesus says in Matthew 18, hey, if someone offends you, if someone sins against you, just go talk to them. You don't call up the elders. Go talk to them. See if you can, they might not even know they offended you. That's happened to me before. Someone's come to me and said, hey, you said this or did this. I'm like, I didn't even know. I apologize because I don't don't want there to be a problem. I want us to be unified. And so Jesus says that if that happens, if you go to the person and and you tell them, hey, you offended me and that is sinful, that's wrong for you to do, and they apologize, Jesus says, well, hey, that's great. You've gained a brother. Your relationship has been healed. The person doesn't want to sin against you, and that's been healed. Well, that's great. And then, of course, Jesus says there's sometimes when people say, well, forget you, <laughs> you dirty Dodger fans. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still gossip about you because I don't like you here. And so then what that person does who has been offended by the sin of another person in church, Jesus says, that that person is to go get some other Dodger gang members and go back and beat that person up, pummel them into submission. No, that Christian is to go find some other people that love that person who is sinning. Love them, because the reason that you take a group of people back to that person, buy them lunch. They're the offender, the, and the one who got offended is going to buy the offender lunch. You're going to sit down and talk with them. Why would you do this lovingly, prayerfully? Because you love this person so much that you don't want to end up like this. You don't want them to continue in their sin and wallow in their sin. And you don't want it to get to such a bad place where God has to do something so harsh to them, and so you go to them out of love. And Jesus says, if the person repents, meaning goes the other way, he says, well, great, you've gained a brother. In a very rare situation, sometimes they still say forget you, and you have to then finally go and Talk to the leaders of the church. But that's the process. And when a Christian does unify with another Christian, that is healing for the body, it's healing for them. Then finally we get to some of the greatest words in the New Testament. At the end of verse 16, it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That is one of the greatest statements in the Bible. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The only people who can pray effectively are those who are righteous. Now, what does that mean? We're not talking about super saints, only the ones in stained glass. We aren't talking about only the ones that have books of the Bible named after them. These are a righteous person is a person who is right with God. That's what it's referring to, a person who is right with God. Sure, they still sin. They're saved by God's grace like everybody else. And yet, as soon as they sin, as soon as they trip into sin, fall into sin, accidentally sin, purposefully sin, they immediately confess it to God. They feel the guilt that is natural, and they immediately confess it to God. You see, because the Bible says that if we sin as a Christian, we lose our fellowship with God the Father. We don't lose our salvation. We're still going to heaven. That's the good thing. We have eternal life. Our eternal life isn't predicated upon one bad thing we did, and now we have eternal death now. It's still eternal life, but our fellowship is broken with God. 
And so if you have some sin that you kind of just regularly do and you haven't really confessed it to God because you don't really think it's really that big, big of a deal, and you pray and you feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling right now, the reason for that is, is because your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling right now. Because there is a lack of fellowship. There's a disconnection between the person who is sinning, the Christian who is sinning, and God. And so their prayers can't accomplish very much because it's only hitting the ceiling. But when a person is right with God, they have direct access to the throne room in heaven. And so when they pray, there is a God who is there listening to him immediately. And he can certainly act immediately. And so that's why a prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. The next couple of verses here, verses 17 and 18, are an example of all of this. The example is Elijah. We don't have time to get into the whole Elijah story. We've got we to get to the end of this chapter and the end of this book, though. Look at verse 19. It says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. So it says, if anyone of you who strays, this is referring to a Christian who is straying spiritually. They, they've started to dabble in some things that they shouldn't dabble in. They started to do some things that they shouldn't do. They started to look at things on the internet that they shouldn't be looking at. They started to think in their mind things that they shouldn't be thinking. They started to gossip about some people at work that they really shouldn't be gossiping about. And they're straying. They're wandering away from the righteous life in Christ, and they're wandering into some sin. They're wandering closer and closer to the guy who's on their deathbed. He's not there. They're not there yet. They're nowhere near the deathbed guy yet. They haven't, begun to, they haven't wallowed in their sin yet. They haven't gone completely down the toilet bowl yet, but they're straying. So it talks then about verse 18 or 19, the person who turns them back. So this is a person who is a part of a, a body of Christ, a part of, a, a part of a church with other Christians who were around. And, and this Christian is just not living the way that they ought to live. And so if there's a Christian that's around them in this church, and they notice that, and they, they turn him back, they convince him not to do that sin. It says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his ways will save his soul from death. I think it's important that we understand here that this is not referring to people who are non-Christians. This is referring to someone who is already a believer. This is not how a non-Christian is saved, by finding bad things that they do and going and telling them to stop the bad things that they do, and then that'll be the right thing for them and they'll get saved. This is not the process of salvation. I know that you want to pull your adult kids out of the sinful mire that they're in. I know you want to have them stop living with the people they're living with because they aren't married. But if they're not Christians, you don't convince them to stop doing certain things because no one's saved like that. What you do for those people is you pray for their soul. You pray that they would be saved. You pray that they would put their faith in the gospel of Jesus because they will be saved. They can be saved. Salvation is open to anybody who would hear and listen and obey. 
But this is referring to someone who is a Christian, who is a part of a church. And someone in this church notices that they're wandering. They notice that they are straying. And so a Christian kind of gets out of their comfort zone because it's not a comfortable thing to do. And this Christian goes and convinces that other person who is straying to stop it. And the reason that person would do that is because they're worried about this person going so far as to ending up on their deathbed. And so they go and stop this person. Notice it says that they will save their soul from death. That death, we're talking like physical, literal death. If you can convince a Christian not to continue to wallow in their sin, it's possible that you are preventing them from God having to deal harshly with them and then ending up on their deathbed and even dying. Remember, Elijah was the example right before, right before this. And Elijah, if, if the nation of Israel had not followed Elijah, they would have physically died of starvation. They would have died of famine. They would have died of drought had they not listened to Elijah. And so this is talking about physical death. This is not saying that you're saving them from spiritual death because this person's already a Christian. They're already going to heaven. You're saving them from God dealing harshly with them because they've come back to living a righteous life. They came back to living rightly. And it also says that that person who turns the sinner back from the error of his ways will cover a multitude of sins. Meaning all of those sins that they would have gotten themselves into when a Christian early turns them back and has them come back, convinces them to stop sinning, it, it prevents them from wallowing and being affected for the rest of their life by all of these other sins. By, it, it prevents them from getting into those sins. It prevents them from being affected by them. It prevents them from being um, haunted by those sins for the rest of their life. So when a Christian does that for the benefit of another Christian, it's a wonderful thing. It may actually really save their life, and it prevents them from being haunted for the rest of their life by the sins that they would have gotten themselves into. And so now what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Well, there might be one or two of you here today who can identify with the man on the deathbed. Maybe you've been doing some things that you know you shouldn't have been doing when you've been doing it for a long, long time. You used to feel guilty for it, but now you don't even feel guilty for it anymore. Some Christians along the way have said, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was uh, some guy in a, in a small group. Maybe it was uh, some Christian friend that you had at work, and they encouraged you to stop doing that, and you said, forget you. I don't care about that. Well, this is a warning. It's not a threat. It's a warning. That God, God loves y- you a lot. And, and He cares more about your spiritual condition than He even cares about your physical condition. And, and God is a, a loving Father, and, and He'll punish His kids. God spanks His kids. And, and so today's a wonderful day for you if you kind of feel like I'm in that spot. Because all you need to do is confess your sin to God. Stop doing those things. Repent. Go back and, and live righteously. There's joy in that. There's freedom in that. You can, you can breathe deeply in the morning and not look over your shoulder and see who's going to catch you doing something. It's great. And all you have to do is confess that sin to God. 
Confess it to sin. Ask him to help you to never do that ever again. And then you'll be right with God. Prayers won't bounce off the ceiling anymore. So there's an application to this. But I think the application would, is even more pervasive. The application is for also the rest of us. And this is the part that maybe we don't really want to hear. If you're a Christian in here that doesn't really identify with wallowing in your sin, that, that you've confessed your sin and you're living rightly with God, one of the responsibilities that we have as Christians within a church body, within a group, is to help grab other people from going off the deep end. And I know that's, that's hard to do. That's <laughs> hard to do. That's really outside of our comfort zone to go do that. But it's a responsibility that every Christian in church, this isn't something that's reserved just for the pastors. This isn't something that's just reserved for the elders of a church. This is why we have our men's small groups and our women's small groups. We're always trying to encourage each other to stop doing that. Come back and live righteously. So maybe the application today might be, you know of somebody, maybe even in this room right now, who is wallowing in their sin. And, and now you might be a little more worried for them than you were before. And that's a wonderful thing. You love them spiritually. And it would be loving to go tell them the truth and encourage them to stop doing that. Help them turn their way back because you might be literally saving their life and you certainly will help them from being haunted for the rest of their life. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to deal with God in both of these areas. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes today? Just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. Maybe you need to apply this in one of those two ways. If you're a Christian today, and you know that you've been wallowing in your sin, respond to God today. He's willing to wash your feet clean. Confess your sin to him, and this is what you could say to him. You could say, God, I know that I've been sinning. I should not have been doing this thing. And mention it to him by name, in the quietness of your own heart. God can hear your mind. Uh, God knows what's on your mind. Confess it to him. God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. That's sin. That hurts me. That hurts you. And I don't ever want to do that again. Please help me to stop doing that. I need your Holy Spirit to well up with inside of me and give me help to do this. Now, maybe you're a Christian here today, their head's still bowed and your eyes still closed, and you know someone who's in active sin today. And you kind of feel like you might need to talk with them about it. So here's something that you could pray to God. You could say, God, please help me in this. Please give me the boldness to get outside of my comfort zone to go talk with them. Help me to help me to be loving. I pray that they would respond in a wonderful way that would um, help them spiritually. I pray that you'd help me in this, in this conversation that I'm going to have to have. I pray that it would not open a wound, but it would heal a wound. And finally, with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, there might be a few of you in here today who've never put your faith and trust in Christ ever before. And today's the day where you could put your faith in Christ. He's died on the cross for your sin. All of them. You could have the hope of eternity in heaven immediately. Just put your faith in Him. Here's what you could say to God in the quietness of your own heart. He'll read your mind. This is what you could say to Him. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. And I know that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he rose from the grave three days later and I put my personal faith and trust in this Jesus. 
And so God, we as a church family, we thank you for this. We thank you for the restorative healing that you provide in all these areas. In Jesus' name, amen.